Good morning. I want to welcome everyone again to Wheaton Bible Church, uh, both those who are present and those who are joining us online. It's such a joyous day to be looking at the Word of the Lord and to worship together in Matthew. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brent Sickle. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here at Wheaton Bible Church. And we're going to continue our series in Matthew. Last week, Hannibal started our series, and today we get to look at Matthew's account at the birth of Jesus. As a reminder, if you didn't get a journal yet on your way in, there are still some available in the atrium. I'd highly encourage it. Uh, whether you're taking notes today with me or you use it throughout the week to study or prepare for the week, uh, I've spent the entire week in mine uh, getting our sermon ready for today and uh, preparing to bring God's word. I will ask one prayer as I begin. I am still struggling with my voice. And so if you see me uh, reaching into my pocket, it is not for candy. It's for throat lozenges. Uh, but uh, bear with me as I may have to take some pauses for some tea that was prepared for me as well. But as we look today at Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, at the birth of Jesus Christ, we begin with the question, who is this Jesus? This is a question that's been asked by many people throughout all of history. Kings, scholars, fishermen, Merchants, widows, orphans, young and old have asked this question alike over and over and over again. It's the question many people still ask today. Who is this Jesus? And so I want to wrestle with that question with you today to help us better understand who Jesus is at his birth as well as who Jesus is throughout his life and his ministry as we spend the next two years in Matthew. So, in uh, Wheaton Bible fashion, I need you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to ask the question, who is this Jesus? Go ahead. Okay, now the other side. Who is this Jesus? To answer this question of who is this Jesus, I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at the identity of this Jesus. I want us to look at the purpose of this Jesus. And I want us to look at the response to the birth of this Jesus. Let's begin with the identity of this Jesus. When we think of the identity of a child, especially when they're first born or when they're young, there are many ways that we define the identity of that child. Maybe uh, you're someone who's looking at the child and trying to figure out who in your family your child looks like. Do they have the mom's eyes, your dad's nose, your crazy uncle's ears, whatever it is, we try to identify who our child looks like. Maybe there's other characteristics that start to be seen in your child, right? As parents, you cherish the good characteristics that they begin to model, like, yep, that's after me. In the same vein, though, there are times where we see some uh, not-so-great characters that come up and we're like, yeah, that's me too. <laughs> Maybe part of the identity of a child comes in their name. Uh, whether you got it off a name registry or try to find something unique or something with significant meaning, names are a part of our identity. For some families, it's looking back at our family ancestry who are we connected to? Who is our family a part of? We saw it last week. 
And for others, it's the legal status of a child. Maybe part of what that child's identity is is who they are. Are they one of our foster children? Or maybe we've adopted them, and now they're legally a part of our family. So all these things shape the identity. And so I want to see how they shape the identity of this Jesus as well. I remember a story. I had uh, gone to my son's school. So I know many of you, uh, you've seen pictures of my children, but you haven't met them in person yet. They'll be here at the end of the month uh, joining us for, for the rest of the time, which I'm so glad about. But the oldest of my boys is Gavin. He's 11 years old. You see him. He has red hair. He has glasses. He looks like a miniature version of me. And so we call him my mini-me. And one day I went to school and I was going for the parent-teacher evaluation. And I'm sitting out in the hallway waiting my turn. And his teacher walks out. She looks at me and turns right back around. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of odd, right? Like, that doesn't sound like a very good sign when the teacher uh, sees you and turns around. Well, about a minute passes and she comes back out pulling the other teacher with her. She looks at me. She points. She goes, that's the adult Gavin. <laughs> I cherish that because we are so similar in some of your traits. But it is. It's part of how we recognize who we are. So as we look at the identity of this Jesus, the first thing we want to see is his title. That's the first thing given to us as we look at our passage today. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. If you're reading a different translation, it may say the Christ. They mean the same thing. They all point to the anointed one. It was a well-known prophetic reference from the Jewish people regarding the future deliverer of Israel. Last week, Matthew used this same word three times in reference to his genealogy. And so in the same way, we begin the birth of Jesus by referencing his title from birth. The Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. We'll see later on today uh, in Matthew chapter 2, probably about 90 minutes from now, uh, that Herod knew of the Messiah as well when the Magi inquired of him. And now Matthew is making it clear that Jesus, from his birth, is the foretold Messiah. The second part of Jesus' identity we want to explore is his nature. And this is what's so significant. Throughout much of history, the church is focused on the virgin birth because of the wording of the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. A virgin is going to be born and bear a child. We see that here in Matthew chapter 1. But I want us to understand that even on Mother's Day, we want to celebrate Mary. Her importance is there. The gospel here that Matthew writes stresses, though, the miraculous conception of this Jesus. Mary plays the important, critical role in being the birth mother of Jesus, but Matthew places an even greater emphasis on Jesus being conceived by God apart from any human father. Jesus' physical birth is just not the primary miracle. It's his conception that makes him ultimately and utterly unique. It makes him the God-man. Right here in Matthew chapter 1, we see that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. 
born of Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she gave birth to a son. In verse 25, Joseph, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So we see Jesus is completely human. He was born of Mary. She gave birth to a son. Joseph had no part of it, but he was still fully human. We see, though, on the other side, though, he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit in verse 18... Verse 20, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And even more clarity in verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. From the very beginning, born of Mary, fully man, conceived of the Holy Spirit, fully God, this utterly unique person comes into being. God with us. And even if that wasn't miraculous, if the conception wasn't miraculous in of itself, it is announced by the angel in verse 20. Joseph's trying to figure out what's going on. This is not in his wheelhouse. This is not in his frame of reference. And we see in verse 20, an angel comes and appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' nature tied to his identity is vitally important, both as fully God and fully man. The third part of his identity that we want to understand is his adoption. We see that not only was he uh, born of Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, but Joseph still chooses to have Jesus as his son. And that is so unique. It is so different in this culture I think it begins with us understanding that Joseph was a righteous yet merciful man. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and that he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. I love that. I know if I was in those same shoes, if, if I am uh, pledged to be married and I find out that my fiancé is pregnant and is not mine, that may not be my response. No doubt Joseph's heart broken at this moment. No doubt his plans for the future and all that he saw and thought about in their future relationship seems to be in shambles. Yet the response we see from Joseph is not one we thought we'd see coming. Joseph, a faithful observer of the law, responds with the news by thinking through it and, and, and still following the law and, and planning to divorce her. He knew he was not the father. He knew that either Mary was seduced or she was violated. And as a righteous man... He didn't want that in his house. But yet, as he planned to divorce her, he planned to divorce her quietly. <coughs> Excuse me. 
all the while righteous, he continues to show and is concerned about Mary and shows her mercy. He's the model of what it means to be righteous and yet merciful, blending together the submission to God's word and yet the compassion for others. He had every right to insist on a public trial of Mary to find out what had happened, to find out if she had prostituted herself or if she seduced by someone or she was violated. All of that would save him the obligation of paying the wedding dowry. And yet he chose not to expose her, not to shame her, but to be merciful. And even though he was right to do this, even though he was merciful to do this, we see God intervene in a miraculous way. The angel comes in verse 20 and assures and discloses and directs Joseph on his role in the identity of Jesus' birth. The angel directs him, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Throughout Matthew's infancy narrative, we see multiple times where God's directing people through dreams. And Joseph, even in his righteous intentions, are now redirected by the angel of the Lord. The dream removes all doubt of suspicion, of impropriety. He now, it's now permissible for Joseph to take as his wife, but he wants to be obedient to what's commanded. He not only takes her as his wife, he takes Jesus as his son and names him. We see here, though, a picture of doing what is right is not always easy. It's not about simply conforming to conventional expectations, but sometimes being obedient to God's commands no matter how scandalous they might appear is the right thing to do. And so we see Jesus take, and we see Joseph take Jesus as a son. He names him. This adoption of Jesus by Joseph establishes the legal line of succession of King David that we saw in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus' royal station as the Messiah of the people is now certified by Joseph and his public acknowledgement of Jesus as his child and he as the father. Jesus' identity now is born of the virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, grafted into the divinic line through Joseph's legal recognition of him as his son. This fulfills the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 that Israel would have a David-like king to rule the people with justice. It fulfills a prophecy in Jeremiah 23 where it declares that there will be rise up from David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So Jesus' title, his nature, and his adoption all clearly identify who this Jesus is from the Old Testament. But if we're still in doubt to the identity of this Jesus, God gives us two specific names for him. Jesus and Emmanuel. 
these names have great meaning. A lot of names have meaning, right? Maybe your name has meaning. This was something my wife Beth and I really enjoyed when we were uh, uh, preparing for our children's birth, was coming up with the names of our children. And if you know them or heard of them and, and you notice my children with their, all the red hair, we went with Irish names for our children. Uh, we love that. But we also wanted to give some biblical and family significance to each of them. So with our daughter Bryn, her middle name is Alyssa, which is a derivative of my wife's name Elizabeth, which means pledged to God. For my son Gavin, we named him after me, so he shares the same middle name of Christopher, which means Christ follower. Our third son, Cade, we named Daniel after my grandfather, which means God is my judge. And our last son, Ian, his name means God is gracious. And if you know anything about his energy, we need all of God's graciousness to handle that. But names have great meaning. A lot of times names, specifically in Scripture, point to the purpose of the person. And so we see that here with Jesus. The purpose of this Jesus is summed up in, the, in these two names. Jesus and Emmanuel. Verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The first name given by God, Jesus, was a common name in that time, and it was a direct reference back to the Joshua of the Old Testament and the story of Joshua. And Joshua's name and Jesus' name both mean Yahweh saves or salvation comes from Yahweh. For Jesus, the Christ, we see born here in Matthew chapter 1, this name denotes his special role. That he will save his people from their sins. Sin, the root cause of the fall, pain, brokenness, grief, sorrow, corruption, disorder, all stem from sin. And Jesus, he came not only to relieve the symptoms of sin but to eradicate the disease of sin once for all. He came to save us from the penalty of sin by cleansing us in his atoning blood on the cross and then rising from the dead. He came to save us from the power of sin by putting in our hearts the sanctifying Holy Spirit. And he came to save us from the presence of sin by promising to make all things new when he returns. Jesus' second name, Emmanuel, has significance as well. It means God with us. God sent his son Jesus as the one who is both fully God and fully man, as a physical representation of God in human form. Jesus was at the same time both human and divine, one person having two natures without confusion, without change, without conflict, without division, without separation. 
He possessed the fullness of divine glory and was the exact representation of God while at the same time in his humanness underwent all of what mankind commonly experiences. Matthew begins here in chapter 1 by making sure we know what this name means. God with us to save his people from their sins. And in 70 weeks from now, we'll see Matthew at the end with Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So at the beginning of the gospel, we see that Jesus is God with us by supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And at the end of Matthew, he is still with us and will be with us always in the heart of every believer. There are many other names Jesus is known by, though. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Ancient of Days. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Anointed One, the Messiah. He is our Prophet, our Priest and King. He is our Savior, the only wise God. He is our Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Good Shepherd. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the Word, the light of the world, and the tree of life. He is the bread of life from heaven and the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our rock, our bridegroom, our beloved, and our redeemer. He is the head over all things, which is the body, which is us, the church. But above all, he is God with us, Emmanuel. So the name Emmanuel tells us who he is, God with us. And the name Jesus tells us what he will do. He will save his people from their sins. We must never detach who he is from what he does. His ability to do what he does derives only from who he is. It is only as God incarnate in human form that he could accomplish the saving work of his people. Any separation of any kind between who he is and what he does, and we destroy the validity of what he came to do, which was to save us from our sins. So now we know who this Jesus is, and we know the purpose of this Jesus. What do we do with this information? To me, this information and what we see here in Scripture requires, necessitates a response. So lastly, I want to look at the response to the birth of this Jesus. We're going to see here in Matthew chapter 2, three responses to the birth of Jesus. And I see that these three responses 
also are common responses to Jesus throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. So if we understand these responses, we'll understand the responses to Jesus throughout the rest of Matthew. And I believe they also reflect three common responses to Jesus by us today as well. The first response we see at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2 to this Jesus is sadly one of rejection. Matthew chapter 2 verse 3, we look at King Herod and his response. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. We had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Finally, in verse 12, having been warned in a dream, the Magi did not go back to Herod, but they returned to their country by another route. The Magi come to Jerusalem. They're looking for the king of the Jews, and so they go to the current king. King Herod, where is this king born of your family? When asked this question, Herod knew no children had been born to his family recently. If you know the history of Herod, uh, his children didn't live very long. And so he took this report as a new threat. He finds out that this must be a new king that he doesn't know about. And even though he may be a baby, he knows that babies grow up. And should the idea of this baby growing up as king be in mind, Herod knew his throne was under threat. A threat to his authority, his legacy, his way of life. And so he set in motion a plan to eliminate this Messiah. Herod was antagonistic from the beginning. Anything that infringed on what he wanted to do or the authority in his life, he wanted nothing to be a part of it. And so instantly he rejects this Messiah. Charles Price says this, Never is such intense antagonism aroused as when an unyielding person is faced with the kingship of Christ. The second response we see here in Matthew 2 is one of neglect, and it comes from the religious leaders. Verses 4 through 6 says this, When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where their Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod asks this question. He's trying to figure out. He calls in the religious leaders and when they're asked about the Messiah, it did not take them long to give them a unified and concrete answer. They go, we know where it's at. We've been expecting this. We know the scriptures. 
It's in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Judea. Yet after they give their answer, we hear of them no more. These religious leaders had been expecting the Messiah. They knew what the prophecy said. They knew what they were looking for. And here are reports that fit the prophecy. Yet Matthew implies to the text that they do nothing. They do not rejoice. They do not join the Magi. They do not go to Bethlehem to investigate to see if this prophecy is true. They do not seek out this Messiah who they've been waiting for. They answer the king and then leave. Sadly, these men knew the scriptures. They knew what the identity of the Messiah was. They knew what the purpose of the Messiah was. They knew who the Messiah was, but did not care about the implications, nor the response demanded of them by knowing this. The response was one of sheer indifference. And so they neglected the Messiah. The third response we see comes from the Magi, though. We'll go back to verse 1 of chapter 2 here. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of the king, Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who had been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 9, after they heard the king, they went out of the way, and the star they had seen went and rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The response of the Magi was one of acceptance. These Magi, who were wise men, were seekers. And even though there's been much speculation into who these Magi were, where they come from, how many they were, what they brought, the Bible shows little interest in these details. The fact that there's so little information of this kind given shows that Matthew is not interested in how many wise men there were, or the length of their journey, or even the star. Rather, he was interested in the fact that from the very beginning of the story, Gentiles were seeking and came to worship the Jewish Messiah. The Magi's response of acceptance was one of humble worship. The Magi bowed down in humble reverence to the Messiah. They worshiped in holy worship of the Messiah. And they gave gifts in the confession of the kingship of the Messiah. There's been there lots of speculation about the gifts they brought. I don't think they really understood the gifts they brought. But they gave because they understand and knew he was king. We know a little bit of the significance of the gifts. Gold is the medal of kings and represents royalty. 
Incense is used in the worship of God and represents holiness. And myrrh, the gift of death. It seems out of place for a child, right? But represents the mission and ultimate death of Jesus. Fulfilling his purpose as the savior for our sins. You see these gifts, even at the birth of Jesus, foretold that he was the true king, the perfect high priest, and the savior of the world. And so demands a response. I love it that these magi were Gentiles. They didn't have the Old Testament prophecies. They didn't even really know what they were looking for, yet they came searching from afar for the king of the Jews. Why? Because Jesus was their king too. In the same way, Jesus is our king too today. These wise men were wise enough to seek him, even though they did not know exactly what they were seeking. They were wise enough to learn about him when they needed to know more. And they were wise enough to worship him when they found him. So we know the identity of this Jesus. We know the purpose of this Jesus. The question I end with today is, what will your response be to this Jesus? You know who he is. You know what his word says. You know what he's done. Will you reject him? Neglect him? Or accept him? Bowing in reverent worship to him as Lord and Savior of your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that from your birth, you are the Savior as God with us. Lord, continue to speak to our hearts as we're confronted with who you are and what you've done. That demands a response of us. For some of us, we've already made that response to accept you. But there may be things in our lives that we are still trying to control and rule over. For others, we've come to church and we know of you, but that's not part of our everyday lives. Lord, may we come humbly before you in humble worship today, recognizing and accepting you as both Lord and Savior of our lives. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen.